Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 41. In October 2002, my next guest, Pat Ochoa, had been living on Skid Row in Los Angeles for a year and a half. He believes that on the 23rd of that month, when he reached out to his mom to ask for help, he walked into God's grace. His mom said, I can't help you anymore. Stay where you are, and I will send someone to help you. He believes his life changed when his mom didn't come with a plan and how he was going to get help. Now, fast forward, Pat is the program director at Liberty House, a drug treatment facility located in Redlands, California. He's a certified alcohol and drug counselor, passionate about helping people recover from addiction. His personal experience with addiction and his journey to recovery led him to pursue a career in counseling. Pat started by creating a recovery component for a sober high school and focused on treating the whole family to ensure a successful recovery. Pat also runs groups in high schools throughout Orange County and created 1111 Intervention Incorporated and 1111 Coaching, which offer services such as interventions, case management, sober mentoring, and transport for youth. Pat believes in educating families and addicts, helping them make the decision to seek treatment and providing support to achieve sobriety. Pat also has other ventures as well. He was interviewed and filmed for the documentary Stop Before You Start that is shown to parents and youth throughout Southern California. Pat travels to conventions and meetings across the United States, speaking to thousands of people in recovery for drugs and alcohol. Pat also is one of eight founding directors of Harmonium, a nonprofit. Harmonium's simple purpose is providing sober environments at 35 of the largest major music festivals across the U.S. to support and inform those who seek the comfort and camaraderie of other clean and sober people. Though these environments consist mostly of people in recovery from alcoholism and addiction, Harmonium exists for anyone wishing to stay clean and sober, as well as for those seeking serenity and fellowship at festivals. Take a listen. Hi, Pat. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Hi. Nice to be with you. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. So let's just dive right in. Um, what was life like before recovery? Oh, life life before recovery. Um, well, it's, 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 it's kind of a broad question, only in the sense that at what point in my life, um, you know, if we, if we talk about the last year and a half before recovery, it was an absolute hell. Um, I was, I, my addiction had led me to, um, skid row, um, you know, previous before that I would bounce between the tenderloin and skid row and try to like pull it together for a period of time. You know, I could, you know, get sober for 30 days and then I would relapse and then get sober for 60 days and then relapse and then, Mm -hmm. you know, try to get sober and relapse. And the last year and a half, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily surrendered to that way of life. I think more addiction just really had me in its grip. And so I was living on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I By the time I got sober, I hadn't showered in six months. Um, I was up for 21 days at a time on methamphetamine. Um, I was, uh, I was um, addicted to heroin, crack, and meth. Um, and I... I had one friend, his name was Chris. It was completely made up friend. He didn't even exist. I had established this idea that if I act crazier than the people on the streets, like mental health wise, they'd leave me alone. 
Did they? And so they left me alone. They were like, you needed to keep going. You know what I mean? Like you're just too far out. And, um, and so by the time I got sober, it was actually a reality of mine that I was looking for Chris, though Chris didn't exist. Um, so I was, yeah, it was just a mess. I had pushed every, all my friends and family away. Um, I mean, homelessness is no joke, but in Skid Row, I mean, I think when you say the term Skid Row in LA, there's an image, um, and, you know, people have heard about Skid Row. We've seen Skid Row in movies, all of that kind of stuff. Clearly really frightening. What what makes Skid Row kind of stand out other than other homeless places like the TL and, and that kind of thing in your mind? I mean, I think the TL and and Skid Row are very, very, very similar. Yeah. Um, you know, the TL, I mean, I was there two, three months ago and it's expanded from when I was there 20 years ago. It's gotten a lot bigger. Um, uh, Skid Row has remained, it's pretty much the size as it's been. I mean, it's growing into, into the, you know, into like, um, expanding up a little bit, but it's always been about a seven block, maybe seven blocks by three block mm -hmm. area. Um, it's very, you know, no lights. Um, it's the difference between Skid Row and Tenderloin, the TL is, I think the TL still has, you know, trash pickup. They still have, you know, lighting, they still have some, you know, the service, like the city services where Skid Row just seems like the city's given up. I mean, there's no, there's no, not much street lights. Um, you know, just trash is pushed into the street from the, from the sidewalks into the streets. So you drive by and it's just trash in the middle. They just kind of push it in the middle. Um, How do you survive for a year and a half? In I think darkness like that. And by the way, for, for listeners who don't know what the TL is, it's the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Um, so a year and a half in Skid Row, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, Skid Row was, was, um, I think, you know, you, you asked how I survived. I, I yeah. mean, I'm a believer that drugs and alcohol kept me alive. Uh, for one, for one, it gave me relief from the, from the madness in the mind and, and the, 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 the wanting to kill, you know, for a long time, it was, I was either going to kill myself right? Or right. I was going to drink alcohol. And, and when I drank alcohol, it gave me a sense of relief, right? It, it, it quieted the voices, it quieted the madness, it calmed the anxiety. Right. Um, and then it started to have that conversation every time. It, it was like, it almost gave me like courage to live life, right? It was like that, that, well, this time's going to be different. You know what I mean? You know, you can, you can get a job now and mm -hmm. you can pull it together, mm -hmm. even though you haven't showered, right? It's like this delusional thinking. Um, it was like this, this courage to, and then in the middle of those conversations, it was like, drink more. And then I would drink more and I'd drink more. And, and then that was out the window. And then the next idea was like crack cocaine, you know, ways to increase, increase the drinking. Um, and so then it was like off on a run, you know, and then it was just, I was gone. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then I think it was, you know, it was, it wasn't living, it was survival. You know, it was, I was, I was surviving. And so, yeah, I was just surviving at that point. Um, there was something you mentioned um, before our call, we talked a little bit about your mom and reaching out to her. Tell me about that. You know, it's, I, I appreciate bringing up my mom. I always appreciate that. Um, you know, my mom, my mom got sober when I was 11 months old. Um, I literally grew up in, in a 12 step fellowship. My, uh, my mom was being sentenced to prison for 10 years, oh right. God. Or go to, or go to, go to a 12 step fellowship for her drinking. And so I literally like grew up 
you know, around recovery. Like I knew what recovery was. Mm -hmm, I could read mm -hmm. all the readings. They would, re I could mimic, I could recite them. I did the prayers. My mom would in, you know, in, in the early eighties would bring people home. They would detox on our couch. Like I watched what alcoholism and drug addiction did. Uh, my mom worked in treatment for 38 years wow. before she passed away. Um, I was very much in the middle, but yet I had my own alcoholism and drug addiction. And so, you know, my mom had her, you know, her guilt and her, her, what we talk about codependency mm -hmm. and, and right. she had her stuff going on and, and she wired me money like $150 every week for a long, long time um, until like, you know, she, I just kept breaking her down. And in that last year and a half, you know, she had found a support system for parents and started learning some different ways to be able to really cope with her own anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and guilt. So in that, in her changing, right, like the conversations changed where she was starting to say things like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. Or no, I'm not going to help you. Boundaries. Or, I'm going to set a boundary, right? <laughs> boundaries. <laughs> right. You know, and so the boundary would come and my selfishness and my addiction, oh. I, I would literally say things like, mom, if I only had a dad, I wouldn't be in this situation. It's all your fault. Uh -huh. And I would break that boundary right down. Right. And mm -hmm. she would run to the liquor store and, and, and wire me money or, or say things like, you know, if you wouldn't have kicked me out of the house, I wouldn't be in this. And I'd hit that guilt. And, um, you know, or I would, or I would just be like, I love you so much. You know, you're my, and I'd hit that sensitive side, you know, oh, Yeah. and, Survive. and I'm not proud of it. I mean, I I've healed and I've recovered. So like, I can, I can, you know, I can laugh at the, the insanity of, mm -hmm. of addiction really, you know? Um, and, and so the day I called on October 23rd, 2002 and asked for help, um, I, I called, and usually like I would say, I need help with, and then here's the plan. Right. This is what I you're going to do for me. <laughs> yes. Cause I needed to manipulate her. I, she needed to right. see that I had this plan of like, and so that day I called and I had no plan. I had no ideas. Um, I literally three days earlier had crawled out of a motel sexually assaulted for the 12th time. Oh. And that three days earlier, it wasn't to call to get help, it was either kill myself or drink. And I decided to drink that day, which that's why I think like alcohol and drugs saved my life. Right? Like I drank that day and I blacked out for three days. And when I came to three days later, um, uh, and, um, like doing the same thing I did daily on, on, for drugs and for drugs. And, um, I called my mom and I was like, mom, I need help. Like I was, um, it's like so much shame and guilt, mm -hmm. um, like remorse, like the voice of like the self-hate loser, you're no good sure, failure sure. that I had since I was a little boy. I've always had that voice um, was like, it was my reality, right? Like it wasn't just a voice. It was my reality. You are a loser and, a, you know, and you didn't do anything good in life. And I called and I was like, mom, I need help. And I don't know if she heard a surrender in my voice. I don't know. I don't, and I don't think it was all that intellectual. She just said that day, she said, I can't help you anymore. And she was like, just stay where you are and I'll send somebody to come get you. And and I remember her words loud and clear. She wow. said, if I come and get you, I'm going to end up killing you. And, um, and I knew like, it wasn't going to be the gun. It wasn't going to mm -hmm. be like bad, angry. Like she surrendered, you know, she surrendered to her, 
her codependency in the relationship with me, right? Like she was mm-hmm. like, like I was going to die, like, and, and she couldn't do anything about it. And, and she hung up on me, which I thought was kind of rude. I was like, <laughs> <You're> like, rude. <laughs> like, where's the love, you know? <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? It's just like, what the hell's happening? <laughs> yeah. Madness. And, then, and she hung up and I stayed, and I stayed there that, that day, you know, I mean, I really believe that, that, whatever higher source power universe spirit whatever great movement like heard a surrender in my voice right because i didn't believe in that power until i was 10 years sober but like i know today like like in that surrender of i need help with no plan i stayed there and these two guys from a 12 step fellowship came and picked me up and one guy had like 90 days and the other guy had a year sobriety and they picked me up and, and took me to a detox and I went with them. Like, but I, I should not have trusted men, right? Like right. Met my dad, sexually assaulted 12 times for 12 uh, times, three days earlier. Like by no means I should have trusted these men. And that day I was, I had to come. I just was like, what do I, where am I going? I don't even ask. What am I doing? Like I just got in the van and went. Not like, who are you? Or <gasps> no on guard, no defenses. Um, nothing just got in the van and went just completely 100% broken. Jesus. And so you went and then what? Oh my gosh. Then, then the story unfolds, you know, that's like where life, like I started living life, you know, I started, I, I, I really believe that when I called and asked for help, I walked into God's grace. It was a gift. It was a gift that I didn't expect. It was a gift that I didn't even want. It was, I didn't even know what I wanted. Like I was like, like, I didn't even ask what I had to do. Like this guy that came into my life, he had the call that my mom called him and he had just hung up the phone with his doctor that told him he had four stage cancer and he had about six months to live. Oh, Jesus. And literally the next phone call was from my mom saying I need help with my son. And that guy knew somewhere, somewhere within him that if he didn't treat his alcoholism and his addiction, he wasn't going to make it six months because he just got the worst call of his life. And so he knew that he had to be of service, right. To get out of himself. And he, and he picked me up and, um, and yeah, it was, I, all I can say it was unconditional love. Um, you know, it was, it was unconditional love, love that I had never experienced um, it was, he was direct, he was honest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and like he told me, he's like, you need to take a shower, you know? And <laughs> I was basic. like, I was like, that's kind of rude. I mean, how do you know? <laughs> you know, first of all, I was so delusional, right? I thought like, right. and, and I went to the shower, like I was, I'm a people pleaser, you know what I mean? So I wanted mm-hmm. him to like me really. I was like, okay, I'll take, take whatever you want me to do. And I went to the shower and I fell to the ground and I started to cry. And I was broken. I just like surrendered. Like, I was just broken. And that guy came in the detox and he got down on the floor with me. He just kind of held me down there and rubbed my arm like this. Wow. And he was like, kid, it's going to be all right, kid. It's going to be all right. And I mean, I, all I can say, it was, um, it's God, it was God's grace. I, I turned and I looked at him and he looked at me and, and he said, he said, I love you, kid. He didn't know me from nothing. Right. Right. Like, he didn't care where I had been. He didn't care what I had done. Like all he cared was to get me from that day. Pick me the moment, he picked me up to when I, the end of the day sober. 
And I got a little bit of trust for that guy. And he said, can you stand up? And I stood up and he told me to take off my shirt. And the guy walked me into the shower and he held me in there while I just shook violently. And, um, and the guy took a washcloth and he took a bar of soap and the man scrubbed my back. And for the first time in my life, I was 27. For the first time in my life, I truly felt love from another human being. Truly felt love from another human being. And, um, Mm. And there was a lot of work and there was a lot of construction and there's a lot of stories that I could talk for hours and hours by knowing. Sure. And so I just rat like from that moment to the moment I stand today, like for me, like I'm a big believer that, that addicts, well, I just will stick with addicts and alcoholics mm-hmm. need to be loved. You know, it's that unconditional love from that first moment I met that guy. Um, that penetrated the, the ego, we'll call it penetrated the, the outer shell protected the, the defenses that protect me from getting hurt. Right. That unconditional love that just stepped right in, right in there was like, right. Is what I, is, is what I really choose to live my whole life today based on is, is unconditional love of, of really whoever I come in contact with. Now there's been a lot of things that I've had to do to get there, but Mm-hmm. If you want to go, if you want to ask me some questions of what those were, we sure. can go, but I, I can talk forever. I, I mean, the story is extraordinary and it is your journey. Um, with the unconditional love, do you have that for yourself? And if so, how does that show up for you today? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Um, it started this morning when I, I woke up and I woke up this morning and I said, great spirit. I said, please, like, if you see fit, allow me to at least help one person today. And I go into meditation and I think of the 24 hours ahead. And I think like, just simply, I go, okay, I got work. I have the podcast mm-hmm. at 1030, right? I, I'm, I'm meeting a guy at 530 to do some, some spiritual work. Like, um, you know, I'm helping him. I, you know, I have my spiritual mentor. Okay. I got these basic things that I know I need to do. Right. And then I start to reflect on, on where Pat can be kind and loving to Pat. Right. Where in areas of my life are, am I lacking self-love? Right. Where am I lacking? Um, you know, like I haven't ridden my bike in a month. Right. That's something that I love. Right. That came in meditation this morning. That was like, you need to get back on your bike previously, like, you know, in my life, my sobriety over the last 20 years, previously, I would, I would be angry at myself. I can't believe you haven't ridden your bike for a month and, and rah, 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 right. Mm-hmm. But that energy doesn't do my spirit any good. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I had to like break down, like, what is that? What are my fears? And what are my, the, the, the fear that I have inside myself, right. That's blocking me from that love of myself. Where am I not forgiving of others? Right. Where am I still holding anger Right. Because that anger comes from an expectation of how I think you should have treated me. So when I start to forgive others, right, I start to have forgiveness for self. Um, and so in that meditation this morning was like, okay, you're not riding your bike. Okay. Let's, so let's plan some time to do that. Right. That the, the narrative has changed within me. So I start to see these things within myself where, where, because it's a balancing act in my life, I have so much going on. You do. 
so many things, right? And so it's like all of a sudden the things that I love get put on the side and the things that I, my responsibilities. And so I got to always kind of try to do this dance. I, I like to try to stay right here, but being a human being, of course, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, squirrel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's just meditation has been really huge for me. Mindfulness throughout the day, you know, is like when that, when that narrative wants to come back, you know, it's like, wait a second, like, what's the reality here? And I look around and go, holy cow, there's a lot of people that love me and adore me. And like, the narrative is saying that like, this is false. It's not even reality. So being present in the narrative, you know, not giving it power, saying, thanks for thinking that that was a really great thought, but I'm not going to play into it. Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to go in this direction where, where, you know, I'm going to love Pat today. I'm going to love others today. And I'm going to be of service today rather than go into that narrative. It sounds so easy. <laughs> How long did it take you to get there? Oh my goodness. I would say daily meditation has been a real, a real game changer, you know, um, daily practice of, of meditation in the morning, you know, has, uh, was a game changer. I would say really, um, COVID was a COVID man. It was, uh, you know, I wasn't much of a meditator for a long time and I was much of a, I was a thinker, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't have meditation and mindfulness, I'm a thinker. I mean, I got, and I got, I, I'm a good thinker. I mean, I think <laughs> of really great plans, you know? Uh -huh. and, and so I had a friend of mine who was, he's like a super meditator guy. And, and, and I was like, just, you know, talking about whatever, whatever. And he's like, Pat, he's like, do you meditate? And I was like, well, no, I don't, I don't have time to meditate. Like I'm <laughs> I got a life, you know? And, and he was like, and I, and he was like, you know what, Pat, I, I said, you don't have time for it. I said, I said, no, I don't have time for it. And then he goes, what else? And I go, well, you know, I don't have the right incense or I, don't, I always had to have the right incense or, or the right meditation pillow or the right, you know, pants to wear right. or you know, the right room in my house. And I'd get the right, and then nothing ever matched up. And so he just paused me. He said, Pat, he said, I'll tell you what, he's like, I'm going to give you five minutes to be late to anything you want in your life. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, but what I want you to do is I want you to meditate for that five minutes. And I said, okay. I said, but I think too much. I can't really meditate. And he said, he's, he was like, Pat, he's like, we as human beings think too much. He's like, that's what meditation, but I go, I, I know, but I breathe. And then like, I have a thought and then like, say for, you know, the five minutes is up. He goes, Pat, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to focus on breath thought comes notice thought and say, I'm going to let you go thought mm -hmm. and refocus on breath. And so I said, it's that easy. He goes, it's that easy, Pat. And so I started practicing that. Right. And, and I didn't think much of it. I was just practicing it. I was doing it. Sometimes, sometimes I was like, Oh, for all five minutes. <laughs> sometimes it was like uh -huh. 30 seconds, but I didn't sure. beat myself up. I just kept practice back. And so COVID hit COVID hit. And and I remember how I was, I mean, it was, I was terrified. I mean, I had stocked up on everything. Like I right. was like, you know, I was like, holy cow, I was terrified. I was scared. You know, I was going to have worst case scenario. Right. And all of a sudden, and I'm a believer that was because of meditation, the thought came discontinue thought, focus on breath. Being right? in Which the present, practicing. right? Practicing. Yeah. Ah. And so I was like, okay. So I was like, you know, and I discontinued all the thoughts. And I started to see in meditation ways that I could be of service to those around me, right? In the 12 step oh. communities, like, you know, we had, we had no meetings. And so we started right. setting up Zooms 
you know, work service. I started to go with the attitude of being a service and through, through mindfulness, prayer, meditation and service, I walked through the fear of COVID, but that was just the beginning <laughs> because then like, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual and cruising and all of a sudden I get afraid again because I'm a human being. Right. And it was like, immediately it was like discontinued thought, focus on breath. It was like, it wasn't like long drawn out. It was like immediate. And so I did. And I started to envision my life sober. I went from skid row to becoming a, a drug and alcohol counselor to working at a sober high school, creating a recovery community, a recovery program, moving to a residential treatment center, owning my own company, getting fired and pushed out of that partnership, getting an attorney, settling the case, my mom dying and the attorney stealing the money the day my mom died, right? And in meditation, I'm visioning all of this stuff. And I'm also envisioning that all my physical possessions got better, right? Like throughout all that time, my physical, even though like it was crumbling down, my physical stuff got better, better houses, better cars, like all the, that stuff, more clothes, nicer mm. clothes, you know, more relationships, all the things. But what I saw in meditation was that great spirit had been guiding the whole process. Great spirit, right, had been molding the man that I had become in that moment that who I was was love and light, that I had believed that coming into this meditation that really all I am is love and light in the world. And so I'm sitting there and I realized that I had a responsibility to go out into the world that was the most darkest times I've ever seen in my lifetime. Right. Totally. And that I had a responsibility to be love and light, right. And people's world. And so I got off the floor and I, I took a deep exhale. I was like, and I left the house. I wasn't supposed to, we were on lockdown. Right. right. But I believed in my innermost soul, right. That I had a responsibility to be love and light. And so I went into the world and whoever I saw, I smiled. I said, hello. I, is there anything I can do? Can I open the, I open the door, right? Like my whole world had changed. Right. And my whole perception of the darkness changed. My whole perception was that this is actually a time for us to connect and right. heal and to come together. Um, more than any other time, right? More than any other time, more than any time. So, you know, it's like those things come, you know, like harmonium came to me and, you know, all that stuff just came to me. All the things, the greatest accomplishments that I've done have come to me through meditation, right? I've come through that quiet time of reflection, have come to that, what I believe, great spirit, God, whatever you believe, talks to us is in our heart, mm -hmm. right? My chatterbox is my self-drive and desire of how I think should be, right? But in the heart, I'm like, this is what you need to do, right? My, my whole life, I've always known right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Right here, right here, it says, uh, it's not good, right? And my selfishness always drives me to take an action contrary to that, to that, you know, well, conscious whatever you want to call it right but i get that through meditation so i need to maintain in that space of spirit to know what 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 the path for pat ochoa is right because god has a big plan for me 
Well, the plans are getting bigger and bigger. So I, I think that's such a beautiful description because previously I had the honor of speaking to you on the phone before the podcast about your spirituality and your practice and how that is a huge proponent in your life as a compass for you. Is that true? It is so true. You know, I, I for so long in my recovery, I lived and operated on on what I believed and how things should be. And every time I operate of how I think think things should be, yes, yeah, sure, sometimes I'm a smart guy. I'm not like, you know what I mean? Sure, sometimes I, I can make it work and it works and that's great, right? But for some reason, I don't have that same love for it. For some reason, I don't have that same commitment to it, mm -hmm. right? Because this thing thinks, like you said earlier, squirrel, I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. Project, you know, oh yeah. So I got this new idea, <laughs> right. but, but when I, when I lean into, you know, I have a, a great idea, like I'm working on an idea right now and I take that idea to meditation, you know, and I sit with it and I write about it and I, and I write and I meditate and I, and, and when it's right, it unfolds the way it's supposed to unfold. Right. I don't know why you and I got together. A mutual friend got us together. Right. right. And I just say, yeah, sure. I'll show up and let's see what happens. You know, I have no expectation. I'm just here to share with you mm -hmm. and doors open, right? Life right. opens. Doesn't mean that there's the doors and open here, but it might open over there. Right. Who knows? Right. And, and to be open and curious and with a degree of, you know, a larger pictures coming in. So walk me through. So you get these ideas, which gives you more capacity and more energy. I can feel it over here. So walk with me with about Harmonium. Is that pronounced correct? Yeah. So Harmonium is a nonprofit, Harmonium Inc. And um, uh -huh. man, it's one of those. So I like to just preface that when I got, when I got sober, I had a spiritual mentor tell me, he said, he said, you just say yes. When you're asked to be of service in recovery, you just say yes. Now, I was so selfish when I got sober. Like it was, I was so self-centered. It was all about me. What did you have? What what could I get? I'm not going to do it unless I could get something, mm -hmm. you know? Like, mm -hmm. And so I, that, that concept was very foreign. Just say yes, because that's where God wants you to be. And first of all, I don't even believe in God. Right. So, uh, but I really like valued that old man. Right. That guy had 44 years clean and sober at the time. He was a wow. very like just really kind, kind, kind human. And so I I said, OK, you know, if that's what you tell me to do. And so I've done that. I've, I've always said yes, because I believe that's where God wants me to be. I don't I don't know why God wants me here with you right now, but but I said yes. And here we are. Here we are. And I may never right. know, right? We never know the, the rock that goes in the lake and the ripple. Right. We never sure. know what that looks like. So I just show up. So I had these two kids that I was mentoring and they were 18 years old and they were going to raves every night of the week in Los Angeles. And they had a year sober. Wow. And, and so they were, they weren't doing so hot. They were kind of depressed. And, and, and so, um, both of them were at a rave one night and they didn't really know each other were depressed. They didn't know each other were at the mental health spot that they were at. And they were leaving this rave in Los Angeles. And they said, well, they came to me like, Oh no, they, that at the night of the rave, they met a guy on the way out who was sober like three years as well. 
At a rave? They, at a rave. These are at raves. So, okay. So talking about raves for just a microsecond, <laughs> raves, I... I've been to a rave, obviously you have too. It is not really oriented for sobriety or recovery. Just saying, right? Everybody is like lit for the most part, correct? And that still happens, I'm assuming, right? Everybody is lit. That's lit the, I, the fuck lit. up. <laughs> yeah, okay. I like the F-bomb. My first rave was in 1992 in South Central Los Angeles. Wow. Um, it was, it was um, yeah, and I dropped four hits of LSD. Sure. Um, Took. And when I walked in, literally everybody was like, Molly, uh, acid, nitrous. I mean, there's nitrous balloons. I mean, it was Bombs just like, everywhere. right. And it was just like, that was, you know, it used to be sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? It's the music stayed the same. It's still, you know, and so, <laughs> and, and that's what it is. And, and so, yeah, raves are very uh, drug influenced. I'm not going to say that, that it's, you know, that they promote that. Right. But it just seems like everyone's really high. Right. right? And the culture, that's just kind of what it breeds. And that's part right. of the fun at that time. So now fast forward. Yeah. You got these two kids that are depressed coming from a rave. They're at the rave. They're in the, they're leaving. They're in the parking lot. They meet this guy that's clean and sober three years as well. And they're Which blown is nuts. Away. Kind of like, nuts. You're sober. They're like, you're what? sober. How does right. that even happen in the same space? Right. For so real. Sober and everyone was tripping out. They were tripping out. Right. And so they had a little meeting in the parking lot, right? That guy shared his story and they shared their story and they were able to get honest about where they were at. While this rave is like happening yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the parking lot. Yeah. Wow. And so they had what they would call spiritual experience right. and they knew in their hearts that there needed to be meetings at raves. They had about a year sober each. I think I had about, well, it's coming up on 10 years. So I had 10 years sober. Wow. So the next day, because of my history of, you know, the rave scene in Los Angeles and they, you know, they wanted me to reach out to Pasquale, who owns Insomniac, right? His because name, this, by the way. Yeah, because this needed to happen. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I don't think it needs to happen, guys. You know what I mean? Uh, they had this spiritual experience. I was just over here going, yeah, you both want to kill yourself. I don't think that this is a great idea. Um, and so I was very put the brakes on, right? Because in that. Right. And that's what I was talking about earlier is that prayer, right? That prayer meditation, when I go internally, right, I can, and they were internally, they were in tuned with what their spirit was telling them, even though it was chaos. Right. Right. To me, I get afraid and I put the brakes on because I'm living in here, right? Mm -hmm. I'm living in that space of like, nah, it doesn't sound so good. So I get a call from one of, um, one of the young man's dad, um, Sean Brickle, rest in peace. He's passed away, but he's mm -hmm. uh, been, was in the music industry for a long time in the sixties and seventies and eight, well, for his whole career. And so he contacted me and he said, Pat, he's like, you know, I, I really want to help my son Q's his name. I really want to help Q. Um, but I'm afraid that he's going to relapse, right? If we do this, he's like, will you help keep him sober through it? And wow. so here's that asked to be of service. I just say, say yes, because yes, that's where, where great spirit or God wants me to be. Right? right. And so I go, okay, I'll do it. So I contact Pasquale within like with, within a day, 
consciousness group was formed. Um, Pasquale wanted, you know, they wanted their own brand consciousness mm-hmm. group. So harmonium. So anyway, so we create consciousness group, me, his dad, who was, uh, he had to have been 60 at the time and maybe 55. And these two kids go to nocturnal wonderland in San Bernardino at grant at San Manuel. And okay, explain a- that really quickly, nocturnal, just for a second for listeners to understand yeah. what how big that is. So Nocturnal Wonderland is a music festival. I, I don't know what the attendance is, 45,000 plus, maybe 35,000, maybe. Massive. I don't I don't want to be it's a big, it's a big, big, big festival. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And they put us way at the top of the hill in this tent, and not one attendee came by. Right. And we were like, oh man. And so Sean contacted a, uh, a friend of his at Bonnaroo and, and Ken said, you need to get out here to Bonnaroo because we have a guy named Patrick Whalen who's been doing sober tents at Bonnaroo for years. And Bonnaroo is another festival in Tennessee. Wow. And so he said, you got to meet Patrick. Patrick Patrick Whalen. So we flew out to Bonnaroo. Well, we contacted Patrick Whalen. We're going to volunteer at the clean and sober tent at Bonnaroo. Now, a little background on sober tents. Grateful Dead started, well, a group of people started called the Wharf Rats at Grateful Dead shows many, many, many years ago. Wow. And they're clean and sober, Grateful Dead, great deadheads. And they have camp and they have meetings and they would show people that the meetings were here by having yellow balloons. That was the sign, yellow balloons. And so, I mean, fish had all the jam bands have us clean and sober community. So we go to Bonnaroo and we meet Patrick Whalen and he had established this clean and sober tent for years. I don't know how many years exactly, but uh-huh. we were there and I'll tell you one quick story happened. There was this kid came and he said, He's like, you guys are sober. And we're like, yeah, been sober however many, 10 years at the time. And uh, he's like, like, no, not even weed. I'm like, not even weed, clean and sober. And so the next day he came, it's a three-day festival. The next day he came and he decided that he wanted to be sober that day. And so we hung out with him all day long. And about 10 o'clock, he was missing in action. Sure. So we knew he drank and used and he came back and he passed out in the tent and we closed the tent up around him and we went to camp. We fell asleep the next morning we came back and he was still passed out. So we had a meeting. I think there was probably 50 people in the meeting and we left a seat open just in case he came, came to. And so the meeting happened and he woke up in the middle of the meeting and we just kind of scooped him up and we put him on the, we put him on the, on the chair and he decided to stay sober that day. We gave him some resources for back home. Mm-hmm. So he made contact with some some individuals with their numbers. The next year he came back to Bonnaroo and took a year a year chip. He had stayed sober. Oh wow. In that situation, right? So it was like, wow, like this is what we're doing, right? So in that year, we formed a nonprofit called Harmonium Inc. And it was Sean. Uh, these two guys, Q and Brad, Patrick and I, and Ken and a guy named Mike, and we formed a nonprofit. Now, Insomniac, we had one, we have EDC, the biggest festival in the world. Well, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, EDC, Nocturnal Wonderland, 
Beyond Wonderland, Escape, and then we had Bonnaroo, and then we got Lollapalooza um, in Chicago. And, and so like Lollapalooza, they're Huge. clean. And yeah, and there's sober tents called Soberside, right? And wow. Bonnaroo, you know, and so we, they all have their own individual names because it's their own brand. Oh, Soberoo at Bonnaroo. Uh-huh. And so fast forward 10 years, that nonprofit has 35 music festivals across the country. And we take clean and sober tents into festivals across the country. And if you search Harmonium Inc., I want to say .org, I can look it up exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I my phone's off. But That's impressive. That's amazing. And yeah, people and go to vol- these tents. Yeah. And if you want to volunteer, you just go on our website, fill out a volunteer form. Um, you know, you can volunteer and, you know, we are volunteers. Um, you know, it's a, usually a two hour shift at the table a day and you just yeah. sit at the table and there's candy and we put tapestries up and people come by and they're like, what do you guys do? And we're like, you know, we're clean and sober music lovers or clean and sober, you know, ravers or whatever, whatever, depending on the festival and people are blown away and they want candy and, you know, at least at the insomniac festivals, we say, Hey, tell us a secret, tell us a joke. Or if you can donate, you can have some candy. And so people will like tell you secrets. They've never told anybody, you know, and we're able to tell stuff to them that, you know, and so then we share our stories and, you know, um, and then we have three support meetings a day in the middle of the festival. Jesus. So like at EDC, there's five huge stages, 145,000 people. And we're literally in the middle of it all. And you hear like, boom, boom, like so loud. And like, we're having a meeting. (laughs) So ironic. How in the world? Because now EDC is that electronic dance. Daisy Carnival. Okay. Electric Daisy Carnival, yeah. Electric Daisy Carnival. And so you're doing this. I mean, it seems so polar opposite. Like people would be like not even going into your tents, but people are going in your tents because people need a safe place to be or like in that moment where they don't want to be around people that are super high or super drunk. Right. Um, So it's safe or they want to stop. Or like, you know, there's like kids that are like going to festivals and they like – I still, I mean, I'm 48. I still love house music. I still love, you know, I still love the music. I still dance. I I was at a festival a couple years ago and this, it was bro safari was playing and it was me and two friends. And I was like going crazy. You know what I mean? This kid looked at me, he's like, what drugs are you on? And I was like, I've been sober 17 years. Like I'm not on any drugs. And he was like blown away. And he's like, dude, you're old enough to be my dad, you know? Oh, and then and then he looked and I'm like dancing in sandals, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like, you know, and, and, and he was like, you're sober. Like, how are you sober here? Right. You know? And it's like, this is how, you know, this is how I am. Right. Like I love, it's the love for the music. Um, you know, it, you know, the, you know, the rave scene, it, you know, the value and morals of the rave scene is plur, peace, love, unity, and respect, you know, and I I bring that into every area of my life. And so a lot of it is like, you know, being okay with being sober, you know, being okay with saying, you know what, like, dude, sober is rad, you know, I live a good (laughs) life, like it's amazing life I live. And so being that example, and, and so, oh, and so what I'm saying, what I was saying is that there's kids that 
that gets sober and their treatment center says, you can't go to raves anymore. Right. And they're like, but I love the music. Like, and the connection, you, right? Yes. I mean, it's, I can go into a whole nother talk about that, but it's a community, it's family. It's, you know, you look at house music is comes from inner city, That's you know, right. where, where there's, you know, just, you know, I remember, I remember in 1992, you know, realizing I was in this dirty warehouse in South central Los Angeles. Ugh. There was, you know, Mexican gangster, you know, Cholo guy, there was African-American, you know, there was in 92, you know, um, the LGBTQ community wasn't accepted, but at the rave scene, it really was, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? You'd see two men making out, you'd see, you know, um, transition, you know, the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And white everybody and the, everybody loved each other. Like it was like all of that stuff was left at the door. Right. And we were in together. Um, and so there's a lot of community. And so those people, you know, we're like, no, you can stay sober and be here. You know, you can come here, you know, it's okay to keep the things you love in life, right? As long as you have a support group, you know, I, as long as you have a support group. I think that's really important because I think, as you know, with people coming into the Sober Curious movement, people who are now realizing wellness is important to them, um, it's, it's difficult to find your people, your tribe, right. you know, your community, because most people who stop just stop the behavior of using and they still miss out. They're still lonely. They're still wanting to do all these things they used to do loaded, but they're just not doing it anymore. And I think you said something really important, Pat, which is, you know, honestly, it, it may not be just the activity you love. It's with the people you're surrounded by. Right. A hundred percent. And that's, you know, that's, um, I mean, I've worked in addiction treatment for 19 years right. and that's my message all the time is like, you know, find your tribe you know, find, find your people, like the people you were with, well, the people that I was with before I got sober, they weren't healthy, right? They were encouraging more drug use, right? They were encouraging like, and it was because everybody was using, right? It wasn't, they were bad people. It was just that that's what we were doing. And so you get sober and, and, and we have to let go of that life style and those people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm left with being alone. Right. But and that's a hard piece. Life. And a lot of people slip after that. And my whole life I've been alone. And so now like, you're going to tell me to let go of the one little grasp of anything I think I have. Um, and so it's all, it's about finding that tribe. It's about, you know, I'm a big believer, like, you know, I've worked in adolescent treatment a long time and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you hear all the time, parents are like, just get my damn kid off hip hop, you know? And it's like, it's not the reality. Like you can't, you have to teach people how to live a good life within the things that they love. Right. Um, that. You know, it's like, how can I teach you the coping skills that you need in order to be successful in life? Right. I'm not here to take away anything because then I lose rapport. If right. I say, right. And then I, I lost you. Right. I'm going to try to another grown up telling me what to do. I'm going to conform you. You know, they're like, <laughs> right so it's like you know okay the, you know this is your lifestyle how can we help you you know achieve the things that you want in life how can we get you there because but if they're bought in they're bought in right 
I mean, you have a tough population. I mean, it's hard enough, as you know, getting adults to get clean and sober. Right. Um, but you work with young people, like in the age 14, 18, 20 years old kind of range, which is also a very big risk factor for addiction, right? Because right. their brains aren't fully grown yet. Their frontal lobe is still in process here. So they're still impulsive. They don't need drugs to be impulsive, poor decision makers and, and mood dysregulation, because that's just being an adolescent, a young person. Right. You know, and that's, I mean, right now where I current, where I'm currently the program director at Liberty House Recovery, like I work with all adults and like right now my population is like 50, 50 year old alcoholics, right. you know, um, and, but mo a lot of my career was adolescent, you know, and, mm -hmm. but I, I, you know, it's my population at 50 is this acting exactly the same as 14. Oh yeah. Just different, longer use. <laughs> it's just age appropriate for the 14 year old. You know that, <laughs> right. That way, Cause the you development know. kind of stopped, right? When they started. Yeah. Right. So you know, and, what, in, what inspires you now? I mean, it sounds like all, everything you're doing right now is very heartfelt and kind of surrounded with spirituality, light and all of this. Like, what do you actually do to have fun? For you, oh. I know you're a busy guy. I know you are, but yeah. what do you do for fun now? Well, I have a I have a 29 inch BMX bike, which is like you know I I love my bike. Um, I love you know hiking. Um, I love art. I love graffiti art. I love street art. And so like uh, you know Sunday night, me and my son were downtown LA, um, just like looking for art. You know, like you know, which means sometimes you end up in the you know, not so greatest of places, but you know, it's, um, you know, the whole art, the whole hip hop culture, you know, um, it's just something that I really love. I love, I love, uh, I love inner cities. I love coffee shops. I love, I, I love a barbecue. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We got a good barbecue spot. I'm there, you know, um, you know, I, I love community, you know, um, community is like really, really important to me, you know, just hanging out, just look at, just watching people watching how things are going. You know what I mean? This Fascinating, watching, like, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, and, and every little community is different, you know, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm an introvert, believe it or not. I may not feel that way to you, but I need to, I need a lot of self time to recharge, you know, um, sure. I, you know, I, I, um, I mean, I've DJed since 1993. I collected my first record. Now records aren't really, we don't collect them anymore. It's hard to get, but there's still a little bit of record stores. Everything's changed to MP3, but, um, you know, and, you know, music and live show, live music shows. I love um, Trevor Hall. Have you heard him? Mm -hmm. That's okay. crazy. Trevor Hall is probably Trevor Hall. Well, Trevor Hall and Naco and medicine for the people are two of my Your faves, faves, but, um, for newer music um let's see live shows um yeah it's kind of like what i like to do who i am and like for so i'm talking to a lot of folks who are engaged in healthier living healthier lifestyle whether it be recovery or you know staying you know alcohol free for a minute um and when I ask them what they do for fun, they have to pause because it's some for fo some folks, it's like, I don't know how to reimagine fun without drinking or using because as adults, you know, there's a lot of things that are in our culture. It's very alcohol or drug set more mainly alcohol centric, 
and then everything else comes, right? So when you were listing off these amazing things, I was thinking about, well, some of those might have been things you might have enjoyed as a child. All of it. Yeah. You know, and you were telling, as you were saying that, I I'd had that exact thought was like, was all of these things that I love today are things I loved before addiction and alcoholism right. took over. When alcoholism and addiction took over, it took away those things that I loved to do. Right. And then I was damned to do what drugs and alcohol told me to do. So when I got sober, I realized that I can do all of the things that I love without drinking and using. Now, it was a hard process to walk through because, yeah. because a lot of those things I did when I was drinking and using, you know, like before addiction really took over. Um, and so I got to walk through my first live show. I got to walk through my first D, uh, rave sober, you know. Um, I actually, my first rave, I was six months sober. I got a Red Bull instead of a, a Long Island iced tea. I got a Red Bull, right? So I had something in my hand and, you know, I was staying up all late night. So it was energy drink. And, and I remember putting it down I was dancing and I had my eyes closed and I opened my, and I was in the moment. I was like, oh, I can do this sober. And I picked my Red Bull up and it was vodka Red Bull. Someone had switched the cup on accident and, um, I oh like God. instantly like spit it out. Like, like, right. Like I recoiled from a hot flame. It was like alcohol no longer is a part of my life. And it happened subconsciously. Right. It was just like a was, reaction. Yeah. Like some and, threat. And I, yeah. And I remember the next day I left the thing, obviously, because I was scared and mm -hmm. I thought I had relapsed and I called yeah. my mentor and he was like, what was your motive? I said, my motive was to have a good time. Like, he's like, then there wasn't a relapse. Like, and it looks like, like your sobriety life spiritually, like you have a spiritual connection that pushed you away from. And I realized that I was a lot stronger than I thought I was. Right. And so I started to experience life and, and, and it's uncomfortable. Right. I mean, I having like, anxiety i have fears i'm sure it's human. afraid of what people think of me right? all these yeah. things that alcohol and drugs allow me to to Numb, right? lubrication to be able to like oh who cares you know right, right. and i got to do it and walk through the fears of of life and then i have an experience that's opposite of what the head says the head says yeah i don't even show up you're not gonna be good it was so why even do it anyways i'm like no actually you did good last time and then I would go and then I'd have a new experience that it was good. And then, and I have more experiences today that are good than bad. See, that's so important to remember. Remember, we all like our dopamine hits, right? Yeah. So and part of the dopamine, as you know, is really about memory and re repetition and learning. And now you've got all these positive reinforcers. So right. why would you want to go back? That's right. That's right. I have more positives today than I have negatives, but I had to walk through it all right i had to walk through it all with with like what we talked about earlier with my tribe yeah right with with my mentors with my people in my life that guide me you know i think it's important that for me it's important that i have a, a mentor a guide when my phone rang earlier it was my mentor actually calling me back but you know it's like i still call him 20 years clean and sober you know i wow. still call him 
because I'm a human being. Like I get afraid, like, you know, I had that, that narrative can come and I, and I, and I'm able to process that stuff. You know, therapy was huge, you know, for me at a point in my life when my mom died, right. Um, because a lot of that old narrative was attached to my mom, right. Mm-hmm. That old narrative was attached to my dad. And, w- and I never met my dad. We don't need to go into all that. I know it's coming mm-hmm. to the hour, but, but when I, when I finally was like, you know what, I'm going to go find my dad. And I took the action. Wow. Like I can tell you a lot, but it opened up. I went from an only child with a single parent, my mom dying to finding my dad's family at the time. And I walked into a 250 cousins, eight brothers. I had six brothers and sisters that lived 60 miles from me. And I had no idea. Wow. But in the, in the walking through it, and seeing the, having this new experience, the narrative was a lie, wasn't it? The narrative was a lie. Right. And so there's healing in that. Now, when the narrative becomes a lie, right, I get to create new beliefs, right? And new narratives in my life. No, I am loved. I am valued. I am appreciated. I am wanted, right? Which is how I live my life today. Most of the time, I can, I'm human. I can fall back into that Absolutely. Space. Absolutely. But for the most part, I live in that freedom. And that's, you know, that's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's just, you know, spiritual mentors, you know, 12 step fellowships, uh, therapists, you know, um, all of that stuff is so important in the process of recovery. At least for me, it's been. Right. And you have to be willing and open to accept it, right? As a people pleaser, you know, giving and being of service is huge, but also how did you teach yourself how to receive? That's a great question. I love, I like that one by honestly, by being, being like doing the work around my dependency upon my mom, really. Like when my mom died, like it cracked me open. Like yeah. I experienced pain on a level that's, I can't even put into perspective. I can't even, I can't even verbalize the pain. Um, and, um, I was an orphan. It was like, dad, no dad, no mom. And I was 44. I was like, I remember looking up in the sky. Like, I'm like, God, I said, dude, I'm a, I'm an orphan. Like I'm truly alone. Oh. Right. Like that feeling of being alone my whole life. Like it was like a reality. But what I came to believe when I said that out loud, I, I felt internally was like, you've never been alone. Mm. You've never been alone. Right. And that spirit um, is right. I've never been alone, you know? And so in that space, I could forgive myself, right? I could, I forgave my mom. I forgave my dad. I forgave, you know, and, and whenever I hold resentment, right. I'm only drinking my own poison, right. right? I'm only hating myself, right. I'm only, you know, that person's over there living their life and I'm dying, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And so I really try to be free of that space of resentment. Um, you know, obviously my feelings get hurt. I'm a sensitive, very sensitive, you know, I love hard. So it's, I'm, I'm sensitive, you know, I put myself out there so I get, I get hurt, you know, mm-hmm. and um, just really looking, you know, doing a lot of processing of, of um, what is this about, right? Like, what are you afraid of? Right. What are you afraid of? Cause really, you know, people can say whatever they want. Does it matter? People can do whatever they want. Does it matter? But it's how I, what I'm afraid of, losing something, something being taken away, some, you know, not getting what I want. And then in that fear, 
I'm living in self again. I'm living in that nonsense and I don't love myself. I'm not good enough. Yeah, you're right. You, that guy's dictating how I am. Mm-hmm. And this is not the truth. You know, I'm in, I'm in full, complete control and power of my life today. How yeah. I want to react, my yeah. attitude towards it. Right. That's all I can control is, mm-hmm. is my attitude and, and, and how I react really. That's it. Honestly. Right. But that's, that's empowering, it. isn't it? Because yeah. now you're in the driver's seat. You're not a passenger yeah. in the back of the trunk of a car. Right. right. You can absolutely do that. But the, that also means there's accountability and responsibility in that too, right? There is. There is. And so when I react, then I get to go and say, like the other day, I reacted to my son. He's 16. And, you know, and um, I just, rah, 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 you know? and I got frustrated. I got annoyed and I paused because I didn't feel good. I know when I don't act align, align, in alignment, Sure. I pause and, you know, I said a little prayer and, and I knew I needed to apologize. I knew I needed to make it right. And so, you know, I sat down with them and I, and I just said, Hey, you know, I'm experiencing some fear in my life. And, you know, and I, I reacted in that fear and uh, because of our relationship, but because of, you know, being able to be a human being in his life rather than an authoritative father being a human being in his life and be, and be able to be open to show him my, that I'm fallible to show him that I make mistakes, to show him that I get afraid to show him that my feelings get hurt to these kinds of things. You know, he said to me, he said, dad, what are you afraid of? Great question. Right. And I was able to get honest about, you know, the fears that I was experiencing you know, and he was able to say, dad, did you pray about it? And I said, I did. And he said, is there anyone you can help? And I said, there is. He said, then why don't you go do that? Right. You're forgiven here, <laughs> but go do that, you know? And so. That's um, your 16 year old son. That's my 16 year old son. Yeah. I can tell we can have wow, a whole nother session on, on my relationship being learning how to be a dad because I was, I was raised without a dad. I was terrified right. I didn't know how I was going to be a dad. And my relationship with my son is, is, I mean, a lot of healing happened there too. Right. Cause yeah. I had to walk through, you know, it's, it's all about walking through, man. Even though the narrative says it's like, I got to have a new experience. Am I going to listen to the narrative and stay afraid and not live my life and not be free? That's a choice. I can do that. Or I can face the narrative, face the fear, have a new experience, right. And be free. And change that narrative. Change that narrative. And yeah. I'd rather be free today. So. I do it. I want to do it. I, I want to go down this path. Right. But it's always a choice, isn't it? You always have that choice. I think, I think for me, when I did, when I did the work that I needed to around the, those relationships that mm-hmm. really the fa- fundamental mom and dad create the narrative, right? Yes. And God for me, uh, it was God, my dad and my mom. And um, mm-hmm. when I did the the work around those, those relationships, um, then I started to experience if I didn't, when I didn't do the work, I was driven, literally driven by old ideas that I didn't even know I had. Mm-hmm. I had no other choice, but to react. Right. And so, but, and so when some things happened and, and broke in my life and I had to surrender, was I willing to look at those things? And that was eight years sober when I was willing to do that, but things changed. And so, you know, I love, I love the spiritual life. I love the life of recovery. I love being able to help people. I love, I love it all. So I think that's so beautiful. I really appreciate 
that. And I want to just go back on two things you said um, when we were talking about Skid Row is you healed and you recovered. Mm-hmm. Is there a such thing to be recovered? In my in my belief system, recovered for me is that I recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And when I was on Skid Row, I was hopeless mind and body. Right? I was. It was either drink or kill myself. Right? That's hopeless. Like there is, I had no hope. And alcohol kept me alive long enough for me to find a relationship with God, Great Spirit whatever that is for you, right? Like I was able, right, to get there. So I recovered from that space. I mean, I woke up this morning, I took a shower. I have clean clothes on, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I drank some coffee. I ate a little bit. I should ate more. <laughs> Talk about self-care. I should ate a bigger breakfast. I'm not going to beat myself on it, up yeah. on it, but I should have. Like I, I'm aware of it as I'm saying out loud. Like I don't have to tell you that it's all good and dandy, right? It's like <laughs> I'm a human, right? And so- and I did all these things. So physically, like I'm in, I'm in good shape, right? My mind is in good shape, right? My mind is, I want to be here for you. I want to be here. You know, what can I do? You know, I want to be of service. So I recovered, you know, um, in order for me to stay in that space, like for me, it's important that I really lean into the spiritual life and the more spirituality I lean into, I can stay in that spot. But if I walk away from that, for me, mm-hmm. I start to get selfish, and I start to think about me and I start to think that life isn't fair. And I start, and now I'm in the mind, right? Now I'm lost in this sauce, right? This <laughs> lost in the sauce. And totally. It's spinning, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're, you're a failure. You might as well drink, you know, and, and it, you know, and so I, I, I really, really believe that the spiritual life allows me to stay in that recovered space. Um, now I'm not recovered from ever drinking or using. Sure. Again. I don't sure. believe in that. Right. I'm not, some people do, and that's good. But for me, I'm a seeker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I think that I have a, uh, the power over my own addiction, which I never had, then I no longer seek need to seek the power because I have the power within. Now I'm a powerful person, right? I, I I do believe I'm a powerful person. Um, I can create, you know, I very creative. I can put my, 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 my energy into things, things happen. You've heard a couple of them. Um, but as it relates to alcohol and drugs for me, like, Man, my experience shows I was powerless. I don't want to ever, ever go back. So I I stay within the spiritual world. I love that. And I appreciate that so much. Is there any message that you would give to someone who, you know, is contemplating receiving help? Because as you know, addiction is so ego-driven. It is, you know, nobody understands. I'm in the worst predicament woefully unique is my experience, right? Doing this work is nobody knows it harder than me. I am in the lows of the lows. I'm the worst person you ever met. And I would say to them, I haven't met the worst person yet. So, but that's just me. But, you know, they're coming from that lens of like, I am beyond help and I am a terrible human being. What would you say to someone? I would say that I absolutely 100% relate because I believed I got sober on October 23rd, 2002. I think I called my mom about 7.30 in the morning. So at 7 a.m., I was beyond human aid. Like I was absolutely 100% 
beyond no human being um, had the power to create or help change outside influence in my life. Mm-hmm. So many good people tried. And so I would, I would, I relate to that. I relate to the shame and the guilt. I relate to the remorse. I relate to everyone giving up on me. I relate to the resentment of it's everyone else's fault. I would relate to my case is different. If I only had a dad, if I only had this, right. if I only had these things, right? Like I wouldn't be in this situation, right? I always point the finger out. So for me, like I always bring it to a relation, relate, relating space yeah. and saying, what is it that you're willing to do for your life? Because if no human power can help you, then what are you willing to do? Because I'm just a human power. There's nothing that I can do to help you. But we're in a pretty dark cave right now. And you don't seem to know the way out of the cave. But just for visual visual purposes, I am a lantern that has been put right on the floor, right in front of you. Right? So I am a light that can help guide you out of this dark cave. But what are you willing to do to get out of that cave? At that point, that person needs to pick up the lantern and now has the light to walk out of that cave. And so I can be a guide in your life, but what is it that you're willing to do? And whatever you're willing to do, I will help you get to that place. If that, you know, when and when that person, now the power is in their hands, right? Now it's not, it can't be my fault because I'll let them down. They'll point the finger at me and say, I'm the problem, Right. But now it becomes their responsibility. And that's what that's what happened for me. You know, that guy became was the lantern, but and I walked <laughs> and he guided me out of the pit of hell. And I can help you get out of that cave because I've been in that cave. I know where that's where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and then they have the power within themselves. We walk together and they have a new experience and say, Holy cow, I I this is what I want, and this is what I and then now they have a new narrative. Beautiful. Yeah. I but I'm a that. I'm a big believer that yeah. that 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 uh, addiction, the opposite of addiction is connection. Absolutely, it is. And it doesn't take an alcoholic or an addict to connect to another alcohol and addict. Right? We all have life experiences. We all have hurt. We all have, yeah. You know, we all experience life, right? And so, whatever that 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 darkness and that we've experienced in life, there's light to that. And if I bring light to another human being, I bring hope to that person that they could change. It's powerful. Very, very powerful. Absolutely. I mean, you don't know what hope is unless there is a degree of hopelessness. You don't even know what joy is without a degree of sadness. These polar things that we feel we're allergic to and have bad responses to, these negative emotions and thoughts, we need them to guide us to know what actually is really true. Amen. I so appreciate you being here, and I'm glad we got connected. Yeah, me too. And there could be so many more. Um, How do people reach you if they're like, hey, I want to talk to Pat and just kind of bounce a few ideas off of or learn more about Harmonious or your program? How can people reach you? Pat, thank you so much. I'm just going to give you my phone number, 949 area code. 949 area code 637 5499 
That's my telephone number. You can call me anytime. Text me anytime. A lot of people don't like to call. They like to text. I'm very tech savvy. I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little nervous that I haven't been on my phone for the last hour. I'm not just kidding. <laughs> this thing's an addiction too, right. you know? Sure. Um, one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one thing. But I'm always available. I'll, 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 if I can't help, I'll always lead you to the right resource. Um, you know, I have a medical detox residential treatment center um, called Liberty House Recovery. Um, so I have that service to help. I do coaching. I do interventions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm just I got a lot of resources all over the country, and I I I, I love connecting people with people. You know, uh-huh. uh, I'm not the the answer to all, but I have somebody and usually have somebody in the phone that I can guide you to. So mm-hmm. anything I can do to help, I'm always here. Well, that's beautiful. Let give them a, an email too, um, awesome. if they want to email you. Yeah, you can email my work email. It's p a t t at libertyhouserecovery.org. Awesome. And I will also include that in the podcast description. So if people didn't have a pen, they can certainly refer to the podcast for more information to reach you. I appreciate your time, Pat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was awesome to be with you. My spirit's alive. You you just, you ignited, you ignited some, some love and energy and positivity in my day to day. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.